Good morning, everyone. Do not adjust your television sets. You will notice when we get closer that Caitlin and I happen to wear the exact same thing. This is what happens when Poppy is off. <laughs> There's no one here to make sure that we're not dressed exactly alike. We walked into the studio and everybody cracked up. <laughs> did you have a good Thanksgiving? Like, I did. Good, I good. did. What about you? you? I had a great Thanksgiving. Yeah. It is the day after Thanksgiving, though. It is Friday, November 25th. Poppy is off today. President Joe Biden once again calling for a ban on assault weapons following the latest mass shootings. And an arrest warrant has been issued in Mexico now after an American woman died while vacationing in Cabo. We have the latest for you on that. In the dark, Ukraine struggling to restore power after Russian attacks on critical infrastructure. This morning, half of Kyiv is without power. And we are also just hours away from David versus Goliath in the World Cup. The USA team is not the big dog in its match against England. We'll tell you the likelihood of a victory there. But first, we want to tell you what's happening with President Joe Biden railing against access to assault weapons in this country in the wake of the three most recent mass shootings in Virginia and in Colorado. The idea we still allow semi-automatic weapons to be purchased is sick. It's just sick. It has no, no social redeeming value. Zero. None. Not a single solitary rationale for it except profit for the gun manufacturer. Can you do anything about gun laws during the lame duck, sir? I'm going to try. What will you try and do? I'm going to try to get rid of assault weapons. So what, if anything, can the president actually get done before Republicans take control of the House come January? Let's bring in CNN's Jeremy Diamond for us this morning, live at the White House. Hello, Jeremy. Um, What can the president get done? Not very much, Don, to be honest. I mean, listen, President Biden is vowing to try and ban assault weapons, whether in the lame duck session or after that. But the fact of the matter is that the president just doesn't have the votes and he doesn't have the votes in the lame duck either. You'll remember that President Biden during these midterm campaigns, he repeatedly urged voters to elect more Democrats to Congress to be able to pass this assault weapons ban. Uh, The reality is that while Dems are uh, Democrats are going to be losing the House of Representatives, even now with that majority in the House, the Senate. They just don't have the 60 votes to get over the filibuster to be able to pass that ban on assault weapons. There's no question that the president is sincere in his desire to want to get this done, but the White House also sees some political value in talking about this, in consistently calling for this ban on assault weapons. They see it as something that is broadly popular with the American public and also something that, of course, is a galvanizing issue for Democrats uh, and the Democratic base. And Jeremy, I understand President Biden, the first lady, called the Club Q owners in Colorado yesterday. What was their message to them? Yeah, that's right. President Biden calling the Club Q owners, according to the White House, reiterating his support uh, for the community as well as their commitment, his, uh, reiterating his commitment to fighting against uh, gun violence and also against hate against the LGBTQ community. That's something that we've heard President Biden talk about over these uh, last uh, several days uh, in terms of violence against the LGBTQ community and also, of course, talking about wanting to change the nation's gun laws. We know that earlier in the week, the president also spoke with Richard Fierro that he who uh, tackled uh, the the gunman uh, in that nightclub and saved uh, potentially multiple lives. Don. Jeremy Diamond joining us at the White House this morning. Thank you, Jeremy. This morning, authorities in Mexico have now gotten an arrest warrant and have started the extradition process after 25-year-old Shanquella Robinson of North Carolina was found dead last month at the place that she and six of her friends had rented in Cabo San Lucas. CNN's Ryan Young is joining us with more details. Ryan, this had been a bit of a mystery at the beginning after she had been found dead. What are we learning this morning and why is this warrant now been issued? 
Yeah, Caitlin, a lot of uh, people across social media have been wondering about this. This went viral on social media, in fact, before we got to this part of the investigation. There have been videos spreading for weeks showing this young woman apparently being beaten by one of her friends. We can't show you this video right now because we have not been able to authenticate the video. But her father says it is his daughter who's being hit over and over and dragged through a room inside this villa. It is very difficult to watch. It's from that video where people really started asking for more help. The FBI got involved, and the Mexican authorities have said this was a direct aggression. She suffered some spinal cord injury from this beating, and so many people want to know exactly why six friends could go to a place to have a good time, and then all of a sudden it ended in this kind of violence. Take a listen to one of her friends in Charlotte being upset about where we are. I'm glad that, that it's getting the attention that it needs because I wish it was like this from day one. I'm, I'm more so disappointed that she was around people that she thought were her friends. Yeah, the big conversation really is about how this moves forward, what happens next. The name of the friend has not been released just yet, and the details surrounding this still are very murky. But you're saying this happened over a month ago, and I can tell you there's a lot of people paying attention to the idea that this 25-year-old woman could go away for vacation in Mexico, get hit several times. There's video spreading all over the Internet, and it took this much time to make things move. They're hoping to have more information as the time goes on, especially with the intense uh, sort of scrutiny that's going on. Yeah, just so awful for her family. Ryan Young, thank you. Absolutely. Well, today, Black Friday, usually the biggest shopping day of the year, and despite high inflation and low consumer confidence, American shoppers boosted spending in October, a sign of a strong economy, but many retailers did put out those special deals earlier in the week this year, this time around. Soon as Allison Kostick joins us now from Macy's flagship store in New York City. Wait a minute. First of all, I can't believe the store is already open. And I think I see workers and I saw some shoppers streaming in already. More than that, Don, more than just some shoppers. I couldn't believe it either. A couple hundred shoppers were waiting outside the door here at this iconic Macy's in Herald Square in New York City, waiting out in the cold, waiting out in the dark. Everybody thought in shopping, uh, the in shopping experience for Black Friday was over. I think this store shows that's not the case. Macy's executives greeting shoppers as they walk in early this morning. And contrary to what everybody may believe, I mean, I shop online. I'm a big online shopper. And so are a lot of other people, but the National Retail Federation says just today, Black Friday, 115 million people across the country will shop and more than half done will shop in store. Wow. And what about inflation, though? I mean, we're dealing with the threat of that inflation, uh, not the threat, but the actual, actual inflation. What does it have on shopping this time yeah. around? Yeah, you make, you make a very good point. Inflation is kind of the elephant in the room, isn't it? And that's what's really um, hindering people in, in what they spend. So you're probably going to see people spend a little less because they're sticking to budgets. But I think what you're also going to see is that they're going to be more, you know, not just more cautious, but they're going to be more value-oriented. Uh, they're going to be finding things that really mean something for the people they love. But economists I'm talking to say they don't think it's going to hold back spending. Shopping is expected to actually still increase this year. Uh, spending expected to increase 8% over last year to total about 940 to $960 billion this year. I don't think inflation is going to be the 
Grinch that kind of steals the holiday. I think it's going to weigh on shoppers and people are going to kind of stick to their budgets. Maybe not buy as much, but buy, you know, buy the things that matter for the people that they love, Don. All right, you better get going because I see a sign behind you that says take an extra 20% off of whatever you buy, Allison. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Ooh, there goes my, my stuff. <laughs> That's I'm okay. So We're done. We'll see you later. Get some shopping in there. Thank you, Allison Cossie. All right, this morning, just under a million people are under winter storm alerts. A new storm from the south might cause some travel headaches going into this weekend. So for more on what you need to know if you are hitting the road, let's get to meteorologist Chad Myers, who is live in CNN's Weather Center. Chad, I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. But if you're traveling you. today, what should you be expecting? Yeah, I'm going to call this Slick Friday, not Black Friday, because there's an awful lot of rain across the eastern one-third of the country right now, and there's even snow in parts of New Mexico and Texas. The live radar is under the airport delays. We have none. Zero airport delays, but we do expect some on Sunday, unfortunately. Look at the temperatures. So very nice to be out, even if you're going to be out shopping. I did a lot of mine online, as, as she was just saying. That's kind of the place to do it, especially if you're underneath all this rain. Why drive out there and get all wet in the parking lot? This is the day, though, on Sunday that we're worried about everybody trying to come home. And those orange planes across the northeast mean moderate to pretty severe airport delays possible when the weather is right over your particular airport. Airport, so keep that in mind. Caitlin. Yeah, I got a football game in Alabama that I'm going to tomorrow, and I made sure I packed my rain jacket. Chad yes. Myers. Yeah, and thank get you. ready to lose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Don. <laughs> um, all right, so you just heard Don talking to Allison about what it is looking like on Black Friday. What exactly are Americans spending their money on? We'll bring you some data in real time to tell you. Yeah, and we're going to take you live to Qatar ahead of one of the most anticipated matchups in the World Cup. The U.S. versus England. Your chat is a slick Friday. Oh, today is a day. Today is a day. The U.S. men's national soccer team will face one of the sports powerhouses. I'm talking about England here. The last time the two teams met in the World Cup was in 2010. They tied 1-1. The only time the United States beat England at the World Cup was in 1950, which is considered to be one of the biggest upsets in World Cup history. Could the U.S. do it again? I know some folks who know, they're gonna tell me what the odds are. So joining me now, Wall Street Journal senior editor, Jonathan Clegg, and Wall Street Journal European sports reporter, Joshua Robinson. They're also the co-authors of the book, Messi versus Ronaldo, one rivalry, two goats, and the era that remade the world's game. That's a long title for a book, <laughs> guys. I mean, and it's early this morning, so we appreciate you joining us. Uh, so look, I would ask you who's gonna win, but I won't. But this is a pretty significant match. This is historic, right? Yeah, a huge, huge match. Um, probably the most anticipated of the World Cup so far. Um, and a real chance for um, the U.S. team to uh, make a statement um, going up against uh, England, one of the tournament favorites. Um, no, no getting away from it. America heads into this match as a big underdog. But as you mentioned, uh, they have never lost to, the, to England at the World Cup. Just met twice before. Uh, that famous win in 1950, the English sports writers thought the score was mistaken when it came in, thought England won 10-0 when they actually lost 1-0. So, um, you know, the omens, uh, omens look good for the U.S. Is this a must-win game for the U.S. men's team, or is there a little bit of wiggle room here? The U.S. really needed that uh, three points from, uh, from the opening game against Wales, but 
If they lose, it's still not over. So it's a it's a nearly must win game for them. It's tough to qualify with four points if they if they uh, then win their third game, but they know what they have to do tonight. Yeah. yeah. So they're they're playing for a win. They're not playing for a tie. Correct? Is that that's they need this, or or they're playing for a tie? That's right. Yeah, no, England England won its opening game. Um, uh, the U.S. drew with Wales. Only two teams from the four team from from the four in the group go through. So the U.S. really needs to get a win tonight to, to, to head into the final round of games with a good good shot of reaching the knockout round. You know, a lot of people are going to be looking to these two teams, especially considering everything that's going on over there um, regarding social issues, LGBTQ, the armbands or whatever. So what do you think is going to happen when we see these two teams? Do you think we'll see some sort of protest or some at least something um, that will recognize what is going on? Uh, both of these teams have been pretty, uh, pretty quiet about their plans uh, going into this game. We know that they scrapped plans to wear the One Love armbands with the rainbow design on them because FIFA threatened to uh, punish any captain who wore it with an automatic yellow card. Um, England did, however, kneel before their first game, and I think they'll probably plan to do that again as a general statement about social injustice. What's it been like on the ground there? Both of you are there covering this and reporting on it. What is, what's with all of these games, all these matches happening, everyone's watching so closely, but also all these issues that Don was just talking about, you know, what's it like to be on the ground? You know, um, I think, you know, to to a large degree, um, we're sort of, um, you know, shielded from a lot of that, um, uh, you know, stuff when we're here, the, the sort of, um, you know, FIFA machine that you go through as a, as a reporter kind of keeps you, um, you know, mostly in, um, in in the sort of sanitized media centers and in the stadiums where you sort of don't really see much um, of that. Um, but you know, it, it's um, it, it's it's, um, it's it's been fine. You know, the the, the the organization of the tournament so far has been has been good. Um, you know, no logistical issues. Um, you know. It just remains to be seen, you know, what happens with the protests. Yeah. And one thing we do know is that there's it, this sort of adjusting on the fly. Um, Wales fans only found out yesterday that they'd be allowed to bring in items of rainbow clothing or, or rainbow flags into their game today. So it's it's very much a trial and error situation here. Yeah. Mm. We'll be watching. Jonathan Clegg, Joshua Robinson, appreciate it. Good luck. Have fun. Don't forget that part. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Well, the Coast Guard, this, have you seen this story? It's this wild. is fascinating when I read this overnight. Hoisting a man to safety after he fell overboard a cruise ship, but he was in the water for a while. How they tracked him down, that's straight ahead. Also this morning, Ukrainians are being forced to make do without after Russian airstrikes have knocked out power. We have more on the incredible video, also of heart surgery being performed during a blackout. That's next. Half of Kyiv is in the dark this morning after Russian strikes knocked power out of much of the country. Bad weather now slowing down repair crews who are racing to restore that power as Ukrainians are now being told to prepare for more blackouts. That means there could be more remarkable scenes like this one. Doctors in Kyiv performing heart surgery basically by flashlight because their hospital had no lights. CNN's Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, these images coming out of what life is like for these Ukrainians now as they are dealing with what Russia is doing, what is basically this terror campaign, as you've heard the NATO Secretary General describe it as, they're just remarkable. 
Yeah, Caitlin, extraordinary scenes. This came from the head of medical services at the Kiev Heart Institute. This was a child undergoing uh, emergency open heart surgery. They were only doing emergency operations uh, at this institute, and the operation was already underway when the lights went out. But you can see from those images, the doctors kept going. They used their headlamps, uh, and they continued with the surgery. They worked through the night, uh, according to the head of medical services, and they did not lose, he said, a single patient. Even more extraordinary is the fact that this was not an isolated incident. I think we can show you another image from another hospital in the, in the city of Dnipro in central southern uh, Ukraine. There, the, the head of that hospital said that there was an operation on a 23-year-old man. Also similar scenario, the lights went out, but he said that patient made it. But these are extreme conditions. It just shows that Russia's attacks on the power system is literally creating these life and death scenarios. And I understand you have some new reporting on the efforts to restore power in the region. What's the latest? Yeah, Don, so we heard from the uh, electricity transmission operator in Ukraine this morning that they are now, they've now re restored, they say, 70% uh, of demand for electricity in the country. That's up from 50% uh, yesterday evening. So it shows that they have been working through the night. The nuclear plants, which crucially for the first time in decades were taken offline, off the grid earlier this week by these attacks, are now back online, gradually ramping up their own electricity uh, generation. But those efforts to restore power are being hampered by bad weather yet another challenge they face. And I wanted to, to point out these satellite images that we have now on the left, January this year, on the right, November. You can see that the lights have been taken out across the country. This underscores the challenge that Ukraine now faces. But of course, those scenes from those medical facilities show that they have no choice but to keep trying to restore electricity, even as the risk remains that it's going to get knocked out again. Can we put those images back up that you just showed there, Claire? This is remarkable. These are This is what you can see from space. You can see just how bad the blackouts and how severe they are. This is just remarkable to see the side-by-side -side images of that, of what these Ukrainians are dealing with, what these emergency services are dealing with, and the fact that winter is setting in and they're dealing with this. It's really remarkable. Yeah, and it's ramping up as well. You know, the, the attack started on, on sort of substations, connectors throughout the grid. Now they're attacking the, the, the sort of generation capacity itself with these nuclear plants, hydroelectric plants. Uh, and all, as you say, uh, as winter really starts to set in, people are dealing with this on a day-to-day -day basis, having to sort of conserve energy, save water, all of those things. And for regular people as well, they, they, they keep doing it even when the water comes back because, of course, they feel that it could disappear again at any moment. Yeah. Claire Sebastian, thank you. Ahead, we are going to speak to the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg about Ukraine's power crisis and the renewed concerns about nuclear attacks as well. How much money has been spent online so far this Black Friday? Well, we're going to have live data that's next. We're also getting up close and personal with the moon this morning, courtesy of Artemis One. These images are just stunning. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Of course, Thanksgiving was a little different this year. Uh, your cousin who was super into crypto last Thanksgiving, not so chatty anymore, right? <laughs> I actually saw that due to rising prices of turkey and other meats, a lot of people serve plant-based alternatives. So if you want to know why Arby's and Taco Bell are open on Thanksgiving, that's why. <laughs> we had that dilemma. I would totally go to Taco Bell. Our, we had to what? do appetizers, and so we had like it was beef and pork meatballs and whatever. We're like, oh wait a minute, there's a Why lot of vegetarians. A vegetarian? yeah, grab a vegetable. It's just not your holiday. <laughs> not your holiday. So we saw Alison Kosick out. She's at the famous 
Macy's in Harold Square. Remember Miracle on 34th Street, that Macy's? It's still early, but millions have already had a jump start on Black Friday shopping, or as Chad Myers calls it, Slick Friday. Um, are we tracking, we, and we're tracking purchases. Yes, we are, all across the country in real time. This is with the data and the trends, and Spotify President Harley Finkelstein will show us. We're going to go to him now. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. It's Shopify, by the way. Spotify is another great company. Oh, so Shopify what did I say? It's, it's Spotify. It's a great company. I said Shopify. I, 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 love, I love them too, but Shopify is totally different. I got shopping <laughs> on the brain. You can so listen to music while you shop. Thank you. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it actually, it's, a, it's, it's That's like a partnership made in heaven. Uh, thanks for having me. All right. So I'm a little froggy, foggy this morning. <laughs> also froggy. Okay. <laughs> Happy belated Thanksgiving. So glad you could join us. So what, what are the trends showing? What are we seeing? So let's kind of start at the top here. Um, this Black Friday, Cyber Monday, first and foremost, it, it seems less frantic. There is less supply chain issues. There are more physical stores that are open and there's been better capacity planning. And so we're seeing a lot more stability, I think, than before. If you go back to last year, Shopify uh, saw during the four days, like Black Friday, Cyber Monday, about 47 million shoppers shop across our stores. They sold they sold about $6.3 billion of sales. And we saw a peak of $3.1 million uh, happen on uh, per minute on Black Friday. That was the peak. So, so far what we're seeing today, again, it's still very early. Black Friday has really just begun. But yesterday, peak sales were about 1.52 million uh, per minute at around 6.04 p.m. last year. That's up from about 1.49 at the peak last year for Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing that the average cart price is up relative to last year. We're seeing our average cart price around $109 uh, compared to $105 last year. If you think about what product categories are doing really well, there are five that are that seem to be really hitting out of the park. The first is apparel and accessories. The second is health and beauty. Third is home and garden. Fourth is food and beverage. And fifth is electronics. So you're, you are seeing healthy shopping across a lot of different verticals. Wait, and wait, what are those 10, again? You said the first one's what? So apparel and accessories. Apparel, okay. Health and beauty. All right. Home and garden. Food and beverage. And electronics. Why is electronics? That's low. I thought it would be higher. Hmm. Well, it, it's not necessarily low. It's just low relative to some of the others. In fact, if you look at our top trending products right now, three out of the four are actually cosmetics. Pat McGrath Labs, Merit Beauty, and Beachwear, uh, Beach Waver Curling Iron. Uh, the fourth is Our Place, which is the Always Pan, which is this amazing cooking pan. So you are seeing a lot of cosmetics get a lot of attention right now. The other thing, Don, that, that is important to, under, to see here is that physical retail is absolutely back. Point of sale, wow. uh, like physical retail sales made by Shopify merchants in the U.S. have grown 26% since Thanksgiving last year. So definitely consumers are going into those stores. And in terms of you know what we're seeing at Shopify, if you go right now, anyone can see this, if you go to datastories.shopify.com, you will see a real live map of exactly what is happening across global, across global commerce. Shopify has millions of stores. We have about 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. goes through Shopify. And right now we're seeing almost 3 million unique shoppers. You know, it's 6, 6.30 in the morning, uh, EST, but 3 million unique shoppers shopping across Shopify stores. Sales per minute are above $850,000 per minute. Really? Uh, so there's a lot of attention right now, a lot of action. Well, with all this action that we're seeing, are you surprised yeah. by this? Because obviously the big conversation that we have about the economy, you know, nearly every day is about inflation and concerns that people have and the poor economic outlook that so many Americans have. But is that not being reflected in what you're seeing in these shopping habits from consumers today? 
You know, I uh, I actually I, I heard this on your show on Wednesday. You, you, you folks were talking about the consumer sentiment index. So the consumer sentiment index, which was expected to be 54.9 points on Wednesday, was reported 56.8 points. So the consumer sentiment index is even higher than what people saw it, what, what people thought it would be. And we've already seen really positive predictions for this holiday season. So, you know, a couple of things. It's, it's way too early to say exactly what's going to happen here. But we already we were already seeing numbers slightly up from last year based on Thanksgiving peak sales per minute. And I think that that you know, one of the one of the other major uh, you know takeaways from this this season is this Black Friday to Monday period is no longer just a weekend; it's really become a season. And I think That's that a lot of consumers were shopping earlier and looking for discounts. But the major trend here is intentionality. We really are seeing that consumers are buying in a very intentional way. They want to buy from their favorite brands. They do want to find discounts, but they want to support their favorite brands and they want to buy direct as much as possible. So, uh, Caitlin, uh, Caitlin was just saying um, that she was about Black Friday, that you thought it was not just a day. It's changed so much. We, My family, totally. when I was younger, we used to get up early. We'd go physically to the stores to wait in you'd line. You'd line up, I think, right? You'd, yeah, you'd line up outside. Exactly. Sure. You'd line up, and you just yeah. don't seem to see that anymore because as you were as oh, Those people, about, like, killing themselves for televisions, <laughs> remember, like, yeah, trampling. Yeah. It was That's crazy. right. You always had you always had the crazy, you know, the doors open, everyone kind of tramples on each other. That I mean, you may see some of that today. I don't know if that's going to be the case or not. You're just seeing less of it. And part of it is that I think we've extended this Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend into more of a season. And I think when you layer on top of that, this 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 real propensity for consumers to like, you know, what I'm buying right now are my favorite brands. I'm buying Viore. I'm buying, I'm buying Aloe Yoga. I'm buying James Purse. I'm buying Blue Salt. I want to support the brands that I love the most. And, and lucky for me, those are all Shopify brands. But I think there is more intentionality now around buying great value and actually you know, supporting brands and voting with your wallets for those brands to exist. I think that's amazing. If we look up, and we have it in the wall over here. Like, that's why I keep looking. I'm not ignoring Caitlin, but we're looking at the wall over here to yeah. look at all of the... I mean, this is pretty amazing how you guys track this stuff. So you can do the United States, you can do worldwide, you can do other countries. What about worldwide? I mean, this is we're an international show. Is this what's happening in the United States? Is that reflected worldwide? Yeah, so we're an international company. Shopify has millions of stores in more than 175 countries. We really are the dominant commerce player, not just for people getting started, but also for very large brands, whether it's Spanx or it's Mattel or it's companies uh, like Allbirds or Figs or Bombas or Gymshark. So we have merchants in, in 175 countries, and this is reflective around the world. Now, Black Friday really started as a U.S. thing. It really was something that started in the U.S., but it really has has migrated all over the world. I'm in Canada today. Uh, it, it's a big day in Canada as well. So again, it, it, it's everywhere and it's not just four days but this is certainly going to be the day to watch if you're interested in in really geeky nerdy uh retail and commerce data check out data stories at shopfly.com you'll see everything and it, it's happening in hyper real time it's really cool yeah we just right. want to know where the sales are <laughs> yeah just send them to don and i directly all right Goodbye. harley thank you so thanks, much harley. for bringing all that down thank you. have a great holiday thanks season so we'll see you soon thanks you as well happy holidays all right. Also this morning, this is Twitter. Every day there's a headline about what's happening. This time, Elon Musk is saying he's going to restore banned Twitter accounts, a move that one expert says is like opening the gates of hell. Plus, no arrests, no leads. Nearly two weeks after four University of Idaho students were murdered. But why police say they are, quote, definitely making progress? Beginning to look like we look so weird. Look at us. <laughs> I can't stop. I mean, speaking of Black Friday, maybe we should buy some new clothes so we don't <laughs> so look like identical we, twins. We did not plan this. I know. Great this, minds dress alike. 
the holiday season is here, which means the classic movies and TV specials are back. This year, CNN is bringing you a unique look at all your favorites. Quick preview for you. Christmas movies and television specials are always about someone who has lost their faith in humankind, regaining it. Christmas Story is one of the best movies about nostalgia, family, and Christmas. I watch it every year at least twice. It's the script of my life. It's hard to beat Home Alone. Just the fun and the hijinks. It is on the Mount Rushmore of holiday movies. I lost myself in Miracle on 34th Street. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation was capturing how the holidays make us all insane. There is that consistent Christmas element in Elf of change, of realization. Watch a good Christmas show, and it doesn't matter when it was made. These ideas don't get old. Unwrap the stories behind everything we love to watch at Christmas. A two-hour special event. Tis the season. The holidays on screen. Tis the season. The holidays on screen premieres Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. I will be watching that. What's your favorite? I feel like the minute Thanksgiving dinner is over and you're packing up the leftovers, it's Christmas season. And it's time to watch movies. I think it's before, but she, she was, we put up our Christmas tree. I know. I think she's like crazy. too soon. It's too soon. It is a she's hard and fast up. rule. It's the day after Thanksgiving. I put up our Christmas tree on Tuesday. <laughs> that's not too bad. I guess that's not too bad. What's your favorite Christmas movie? Um, I was just watching that, and I agree with Alonzo about uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. We always watch it, and you know the couple in it that's like the like neighbors next door yeah. that are kind of like pretentious and above all the craziness and they're like fancy. My family always makes fun of me and says, that's me, where they're like, why is the carpet all wet, Todd? I'm I'm telling you, if my family's watching this, they always say that I'm Margot. And I'm like, that is so unfair. I am a little bit more traditional. I know. I I picked a funny one and you're like a... It's a Wonderful Life. Classy. I always cry. And I feel like I live in a... um, I mean, I love it. It is the best movie. I cry every year, and I know what's going to happen. And then, uh, what's the other one? Um, Miracle on 34th Street, the one with one. Natalie Wood. You said you wanted to see me. Mr. That's a good I one. I love Charlie it, Brown the courtroom one. scene. Have you, do, do you know this movie? Yeah. So when they bring, the, there's like, Santa Claus doesn't exist, and they said, yeah, I'm not giving it away. But if it's recognized by the U.S. It's been out for like decades. Well, I mean, some kids, some people may not see it. Spoiler alert. If the U.S. government recognizes that Santa Claus is real, then Santa Claus is real, or that he is the Santa Claus, and then they bring in all of this mail. That people have sent to Santa Claus to the U.S. Post Office and said, that's it. He is Santa Claus, Chris Kringle. And then uh, the other one is Scrooge. I think it's A Christmas Carol. Is that right? A Christmas Carol. The one with Alistair Sims, the black and white one. Not any of the other ones. The other ones are not real. That's my favorite. It's funny how people just rewatch Christmas movies. Like, they never get old, even though you know you can, like, quote them. Yeah. I'm going to watch the new, we're, I'm going home today, we're going to watch the uh, Will Ferrell, Ryan Reynolds new one that just came out. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's going to be funny, uh, we want, We're trying to get Will to come on. We're working on that. That could happen. Oh, we'll see what do we you, think of um, the movie. What's the other one? Do you like, like, animated, I mean, you're a bit older than me. <laughs> the, the animated ones, like Rudolph, did you do Yeah, that? I, those are, we always watched those growing okay, up. Good. You know, Charlie Brown, Christmas Tree, yeah. all those are just classics. Those are good. All right, well. Back to work. We forgot, I forgot we were on television. I know. For <laughs> the Lakers, Patrick Beverly, suspended for a shoving incident in part, in part because of his history of unsportsmanlike conduct on the court. Also, President Biden and the First Lady made a Thanksgiving call expressing their condolences to the owners of the Club Q 
in Colorado Springs. They also spoke to the hero in that story. We'll tell you more about those conversations. President Bush was a good man, a decent man, a godly man, full of grace and love and a quality of absolute necessity to enter the kingdom of God. Humility, grounded in a desire to serve his God and all God sent his way. You might remember that moving eulogy from Reverend Russell Levinson Jr. for former President George H.W. Bush. That was at his state funeral in D.C. in 2018. Now the Reverend is reflecting on the firsthand experience that he had, spending so much time, intimate time, with the former president and his wife, Barbara, and their relationship with faith. It's in his new book, Witness to Dignity, the Life and Faith of George H.W. and Barbara Bush. And the Reverend Russell Levinson, Jr. of St. Martin's Episcopal Church is joining us now. So we're so grateful you're getting up with us from Birmingham, Alabama. Good morning. Can I just say before Caitlin starts, it's a, we have the book here. It's such a beautiful book. And the, the photo on the cover... I mean, it's just fantastic. And I cannot, I haven't had a chance to read it. I cannot wait to read it. But happy belated Thanksgiving. Thanks for joining us. You're going to love it. It's yeah. really so interesting. And I loved what you said that you kind of felt like, given, Reverend, that you had this firsthand experience with them, that you kind of felt like you had a responsibility to share the wisdom that you, that you learned from them and that you saw them talk about so much. Yeah, I mean, well, the, it's good to be on with you. I, I will say to catch the end of the last segment, and you, you forgot the bishop's wife. I would add that to the oh, list. Oh, that, that's Christmas really good. Movie. You're right about that. We <laughs> missed it. Since we're hitting theological notes this morning. Um, yeah, you know, my wife, Laura, and I said that we were fortunate to kind of live in the University of George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush for 11 and a half years. And, um, and that's what the book is about. It really is about our experience of knowing them and getting to know them and getting to watch them, which inspired the title, really. It's, it's, it's my, my witness box moment for 11 and a half years of watching the way in which they lived their lives, the way in which they lived with others and treated others, and, and really, uh, I think, really born of their true and earnest faith, uh, which carried them all the way to the end. Um, which, as as you just pointed out, Caitlin, that I was there for both of them as they died and was able to plan their funerals with them. But they were just wonderful, dignified, decent, godly people. Not perfect, uh, you know, I'm quick to say. Nobody is. That's my boss's job. But but everybody that was around them, particularly those last several years, got to watch really them grow in their faith such that when it came to the end, they were at peace and really in, in charity with everybody around them. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because you know, presidents have to deal so much, you know, deal with so much when they're in office, right, with world affairs, right? And so they have to make really tough decisions. But I, I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong or not, um, you, you can judge someone, a president or a former president and first lady by their time after they are in office, what they choose to do with their time, the people they choose to spend their time with, the causes they choose uh, to take up. And when you talk about the dignity, I mean, look, you, the, the, the testimonials that's in your book are from people of all walks of life, all different political stripes, all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, said a lot about the Bushes. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you played that little clip from the, the funeral, which I appreciate, but I I will say there were, I really, when, when we were moving through the, those funerals, Barbara's funeral in Houston, the president's funeral in D.C. and back in Houston, what you saw was a coming together 
in, in a remarkable way of parties and people and and perspectives that you know so rarely happens in the time in which we live right now. Uh, and I think that was also perhaps one of the reasons for writing the book. Um, there's several moments when I, I come back to the book where I, I say how they were able to bring people together. I mean, who who would have guessed that President Bush and, and President Clinton would have had this remarkable friendship to reach out and offer service on the he heels of several, uh, you know, crises, natural disasters. Um, but, but they really, I mean, particularly the Bushes felt like that there weren't really lines in concrete. There were lines in the sand, and you kind of brushed those aside at times when the need for the greater good was there. And that really was, you know, I think that was the shape of his presidency. He did so much in a bipartisan way. And and as you say, Don, when, when they left office, they could have just hung up their coats and, and retired quietly, but they served and gave right up until the end. And I think that's one of the lessons that that I learned uh, the way to live your life right up to the end in such a powerful and fruitful way. And what about the lessons that political leaders now could have? Because, you know, anyone can look at the, the climate in the United States and see that it's incredibly troubled. And I think you said that, you know, part of the book is talking about how having godly, dignified leaders of character is not only possible, but it, it's necessary. Yeah, I, I think so. I, you know, I, I think it's important to note, and I have to say this again in the book. I, I don't, you know, we we're not we never elect a theologian in chief. So I'm, I, I don't think the president, from what I know and what I watched, or or Barbara, use their faith to uh, further their political aims or goals. I think they were shaped by their faith. Um, grew grew up in the faith. They were shaped by. Um, their relationship with their Lord and, and their faithfulness in such a way that that played out in their um, in, in his policymaking and in the way in which they took on very important uh, service initiatives throughout the country. And, you know, I think if you look at uh, the chief ethic of the Judeo-Christian faith, which is what they were adherents to, their faithful Episcopalians and um, that chief ethic is is love and charity and kindness and the way in which we should deal with others. I don't think they saw political opponents. I don't think they ever saw them as enemies. I think they saw them as opponents. But I think often they found a way to work together with those folks. Uh, and I think that sprung out of their faith. So I think when we do choose people to lead us, we want people who don't use their faith to further their aims, but they are informed and shaped by their faith to make a difference in the world. And look at what he did in those four years he had in office. And look at what they did in the 11 years or so that I knew them. I mean, so many service initiatives that I saw, up, again, up until the end of their lives. Yeah. Thank you. Message. The book is called Witness to Dignity, the Life and Faith of George H.W. and Barbara Bush. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah. Reverend, thank you so thank much you. for coming on with us. God bless. Be well. So listen, we're talking. It was a thrilling football, a thrilling Thanksgiving day for football fans, including oh, yeah. Poppy Harlow, who was at the Vikings <laughs> game last night. Andy Scholes has all the latest on the game day highlights. Andy, hello to you. Poppy's happy this morning. Oh, I'm sure she is. I saw her, her Instagram. She was having the time of her life last night. As were all the Vikings fans. You know, they were they were certainly pumped up because it was their first ever. Thanksgiving Day game that they got to host. They were taking on the Patriots. Now, in the third quarter, we had a little bit of controversy. New England thought they had a touchdown right here. Mac Jones to Hunter Henry. 
certainly looks like a great catch. They called it a touchdown, but upon review, they said it was incomplete. The ball hit the ground. Patriots couldn't believe it. Henry saying afterwards he thought he had his hands under it the whole time. Pats had to settle for a field goal there. Took a three-point lead with the game tied in the fourth quarter. Kirk Cousins to Adam Thielen for the score there. That was his third TD pass of the game. Vikings take the lead for good. They would win 33-26. to The Bills, meanwhile, playing in Detroit for the second time in five days. And before the game, check this out. So that fan had a sign that said, all I want for Christmas is to play catch with Stephon Diggs. Well, Diggs is in the holiday spirit, as you can see. Grabbed that fan, took him onto the field, and played catch with him. That's pretty awesome. And then Diggs coming up huge in the game after a Detroit field goal tied it up at 20, it tied the game up with just 23 seconds left. Josh Allen, a missile to Diggs over the middle. Great catch, set up the Bills for a game-winning field goal. They beat the Lions 28-25 and improved 8-3 on the season. And finally, the Cowboys trying to snap a three-game Turkey Day losing streak, hosting the Giants. Third quarter, Dak Prescott gets it over Jake Ferguson. Look at this. Just leaps over the Giants defender like a hurdle. Quite impressive. That set up Peyton Hendershot, two-yard touchdown run to put the Cowboys up by 15. And check out the celebration. All the tight ends went and jumped in the big Salvation Army bucket, and Hendershot played whack-a-mole. Cowboys would win 28 to 20. They might get fined for that, though, guys. The uh, players have been fined before for jumping in the big yeah. Salvation Army red bucket. I don't know why. I mean, it's fun. The NFL should let them go. Let I them mean, that's what you got to do after you humbled the Giants in the way that they did. You the know. kids, poor parents, too. How are they going to live up to that for Christmas? I know. <laughs> I mean, that's all he needs. Darn, they're fun. No, I'm kidding. More CNN this morning to come after the break. idea we still allow semi-automatic weapons to be purchased is sick. It's just sick. It has no, no social redeeming value. Zero. None. Mm. Obviously, that's the President of the United States. Good morning, everyone. It is Friday, November 25th. Poppy Harlow is off. And again, that's what you heard the President of the United States talking about the issue they were dealing with guns, railing against access to uh, assault weapons in the wake of more mass shootings, but are his hands tied by a lame duck Congress? Also this morning, a miracle rescue by the Coast Guard after a passenger went missing from a Carnival cruise ship sailing in the Gulf of Mexico. We have the dramatic details for you. Twitter amnesty. Elon Musk plans to restore previously banned accounts. One expert says it's like, quote, and I'm quoting here, I'm quoting here, opening the gates of hell. Also today, it is a crucial test for the U.S. men's team against England, one of the favorites to win the World Cup. We're live in Qatar with what you need to watch today. Yeah, it is a very busy news day, but first, President Biden says that he will make a renewed effort to get some form of gun control legislation passed following the three most recent mass shootings, Colorado, Virginia. I'm going to try to get rid of assault weapons. During the lame duck? I'm going to do it whenever I, I got to make that assessment as I get in and start counting the votes. All right, uh, and that's it right there. So can anything be done uh, by before Congress is seated in January? Uh, beginning our coverage this morning, Jeremy Diamond live for us at the White House. Jeremy, good morning to you. The president is in a tough position, correct? 
Uh, yeah, no question about it, Don. President Biden was campaigning ahead of the midterms on electing more Democrats to Congress in order to get that assault weapons ban passed. But now he has not only lost the House, but even in the lame duck session, while he still has a Democratic House, there are still not those 60 votes in the Senate to be able to overcome the filibuster to pass the assault weapons ban. That's why when President Biden was able to get through some bipartisan uh, gun reform legislation uh, through this Congress, it did not include that assault weapons ban for that very same reason. The numbers just aren't there, but the president's saying that he is going to try. The White House has previously said that the president is an optimist on this issue and he's going to push forward, but there is no clear pathway. I want us to be uh, very clear about that. Nonetheless, the White House views this as a galvanizing issue for their base. They also believe that it's useful to talk, continue to talk about this, to put pressure on Republicans, because this is something that is broadly supported by the American public. Let's dig into this for a moment, shall we, Jeremy? The, the president didn't just talk about assault rifles. He questioned the need for semi-automatic weapons altogether. Am I correct with that? Yeah, you, he you heard the president's comments there, Don. He said the idea that we allow semi-automatic weapons to be purchased is sick. Semi-automatic weapons would include a wide range of pistols as well. Uh, in fact, it's the majority of guns sold in the U.S. are indeed semi-automatic. To be clear, the White House has repeatedly said that the president is only trying to ban those assault rifles like those AR-15 style weapons, but the president's language here is much less than precise, and obviously it provides a lot of fodder for uh, those uh, opposed to any uh, gun reform legislation and, and certainly doesn't help the president's cause here. Don. Yeah, a lot of talk about that, I would imagine, at Thanksgiving tables. We talked about it at our celebration yesterday as well. Thank you very much, Jeremy Diamond from the White House this morning. Speaking of Thanksgiving, some members of the Coast Guard spent theirs rescuing a cruise ship passenger from the Gulf of Mexico. He went overboard as the ship was sailing from New Orleans to Cozumel. CNN's Nick Valencia joins us now. Nick, this story is just extraordinary in the fact that this passenger went missing. They were able to find him and pull him to safety. How wild is this story? Good morning, Caitlin. When was the last time you heard of somebody going overboard or being lost at sea and being found? And according to reports, this man was floating in the Gulf of Mexico for more than 12 hours before he was located. According to the Coast Guard, he was a passenger on the cruise ship, the Carnival Valor, uh, which left New Orleans on Wednesday for a five-day cruise to Casamel, Mexico. And it was later that night on Wednesday night when his sister says uh, she was at the bar with this unidentified male and he said he was going to the bathroom at about 11 p.m., but he never came back. On on noon Thursday, she reported him missing. It was about 2.30 when the Coast Guard finally launched a search and rescue operation. The cruise ship actually stopped and backtracked, retracing its route to try to help to find this individual who was missing. He was eventually spotted by the crew of another vessel, again, floating in the Gulf of Mexico for more than 12 hours. He was airlifted, transported to New Orleans for medical treatment. Uh, we understand he's still in New Orleans, and it was on Thursday night that that cruise ship returned and uh, on its uh, voyage to Mexico and that individual has a uh, one hell of a story for Thanksgiving Wait, uh, Nick, to celebrate 12 guys. Hours, that's a headline 12 hours in the water how cold was he how cold must he have been Don to be in that uh, water for 12 hours going overboard at 11 p.m. found the next day I mean it's just crazy what a wild story oh my gosh it's amazing yeah it is amazing yeah. thanks Nick you got wow. it Wow. Okay, so nearly two weeks since uh, Idaho College students were stabbed to death in their home. There's still no suspect this morning, but investigators say that they are, quote, making progress in their investigations as residents of a small town remain on edge. Straight now to CNN, Stephanie Elam. Stephanie, good morning to you. The latest on the investigation? Uh, the latest on the investigation, Don, is that we still don't know 
any clue who could have done this, who could have murdered these four students. What we do know is that police there in Moscow, Idaho, do plan on stepping up their patrols on campus of the University of Idaho, uh, the university itself saying that they're going to head, going ahead and extending uh, remote learning for those who are too afraid to come back to campus. This, as police say, they're working through more than a thousand tips. And some of those witness, witness interviews have also led them to believe that there may have been a stalker for one of the murder victims, uh, Kaylee Gonsalves. However, they're saying they're not being able to find anyone who can confirm this or to even identify somebody who would fit that category. Uh, the family of Gonsalves says this is not true. They do not believe. They think it's just rumor mill activity that she may have had this stalker. Uh, the other thing that we have learned over the last uh, few days here as we've been looking for any information coming out of the police department is the fact that they've been able to rule out some people and say that they're not uh, at all suspected to have been party to this mur these uh, series of murders here. That would be the two roommates who were in the house who slept through it, and then another man that two of the murder victims reached out to shortly before they were killed. Uh, they say that all three of these people are innocent, but obviously many people still very much on edge over this holiday weekend as they're no closer to finding out who could have possibly have done this in the small town where they have not seen a murder in a very, very long time, Don. Oh, boy, Stephanie Elam, thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right. If you're a big soccer fan, you got a busy day today. If you're not, though, we'll still fill you in because there is a huge, huge match that is happening a few hours from now at the World Cup. It's the United States versus England. It is only the third time they have ever clashed at the Cup. And the Americans hope that they'll be able to be the latest squad to score a big upset in Qatar. CNN's Amanda Davis is there. Amanda, everyone is watching to see what's going to happen there. And we were talking earlier, it's not a, a must win, but they really would like to win this for the United States. <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel I need to caveat that maybe I should come on today undercover, given my England leanings. I feel like an imposter in the ranks, so apologies in advance. Um, but listen, there's been a really ominous warning from the England boss, Gareth Southgate, despite their 6-2 win in their opening game. He said his side need to do better in this game because they really want to qualify for the next round as quickly as possible and that would mean beating the US in this game today but this is a US side who are so dynamic energetic enthusiastic about this World Cup and they know this English opposition really well because so many of them play their domestic football in England the likes of Anthony Robertson uh, Robinson and um, uh, Tyler Adams and the goal scorer in the first game against Wales, Timothy Weyer, has said they're really relishing this status as underdogs. There are a lot of US fans here on the ground in Qatar and they are feeling the same. I think England's a little overconfident and our youth is going to run them out of the building. Three to one. Normally I'm watching uh, American football, but this year I'm watching the real football. USA, England, be there. We're going to win. We're going on semi-final run. Let's do it. 
Well, Coach Berhalter said they don't need any extra motivation despite dropping those points uh, against Wales. They want to be the team that does the three-peat. As you mentioned, the US have a bit of a habit of embarrassing England at the World Cup, not only in 1950, but 2010 as well. At least she disclosed her bias. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you get it, at, you know, people know you're not hiding it from us. Yeah. You got another upset to tell us about? Yeah, just in the last few minutes, there have been incredible celebrations. Iran, the other match in this group, which does have a bearing on the U.S. chances of qualifying. Iran have taken a late, late victory over Wales. The Welsh goalkeeper sent off in time added on. Uh, Iran took full advantage, winning 2-0. And given the political situation, all the talk of the anti-government protest, the, the team opting not to sing the national anthem ahead of their first match, you could see the emotion pouring out of this side with that victory. So whatever happens today against England sets up a fascinating encounter, US against Iran next week in the final match in Group B. It's amazing. We'll be watching to see what happens in this match this afternoon, though. I know everyone here is watching it closely. Amanda, thank you for that update. Can't wait to see Amanda when we win. <laughs> we'll check back <laughs> in over there. We'll come back on air to talk to her about it. Elon Musk says that he will begin restoring previously banned Twitter accounts, tweeting, the people have spoken. Amnesty is back next week. The decision comes after Musk conducted his own poll on Twitter users, of Twitter users. Now Musk does, um, he's going to do what he's saying now. He says that the accounts will only be restored if... They have not broken the law or engaged in egregious spam, but it is unclear what the parameters for determining that would be. So the consequences here could be really great for the embattled company. A clinical instructor at Harvard Law School, Harvard Law, says that what Musk is doing is existentially dangerous for various marginalized communities. It's like opening the gates of hell in terms of the havoc it will cause. Obviously, this is very controversial. A lot of folks are paying attention to it, especially the two people we have joining us now. Uh, CNN economics commentator and Washington Post opinion columnist Catherine Rampell and CNN political commentator Scott Jennings. Hello to both of you. Good morning. So, Catherine, uh, it, some people may say that this sounds like hyperbole, but Twitter is very powerful when it comes to messaging and influence, and uh, it does have consequences. Yeah, I mean, I think Reasonable people can disagree about what a content moderation policy should look like. Um, you know, one person's fake news is another person's free speech. I'm not sure that pre-Musk Twitter necessarily got the balance exactly right. The problem is that Elon Musk now is encouraging uh, his users to cross the line, essentially, uh, to become more hostile and potentially harass people more so long as it doesn't break the law. And uh, by by encouraging people to cross the line wherever it is, this platform is necessarily going to become a more hostile place to hang out. Uh, and I'm not sure that's great for marginalized groups and high-profile individuals who might get harassed, et cetera. I'm also not sure it's great for um, the bottom line for Twitter. Hmm. Well, because uh, you're talking about, are you talking about all the brands that are just sort of leaving Twitter at this point? Yeah, yeah. I mean, about a third of Twitter's top 100 advertisers have now left or at least suspended their advertising over the past few weeks. And that's not because, you know, they're woke companies or whatever. It's because there are legitimate concerns about brand safety. They don't want their logo posted next to a neo-Nazi tweet or uh, a serial harasser or a 
would be terrorist or, or what have you. It's dangerous for them, you know, for their for their brand image. And so I think when Elon Musk talks about how he wants to um, decrease how much the website polices content, polices users, while simultaneously increasing advertising revenues, those objectives are fundamentally somewhat at odds um, because when you when you you know open the gates of hell or whatever whatever the analogy was um yeah you're gonna maybe drive you know some more looky loos to, to see uh the the burning dumpster fire there but you're going to drive away a lot of your advertisers too scott the thing that sticks out to me is how elon is conducting so many of these major decisions by by just polls that he's using on twitter obviously you can't really tell who's been voting in these polls yeah. It was that was the case when it came to restoring big accounts, former President Trump's, Marjorie Taylor Greene's accounts like that. Also, this decision that they're talking about uh, unbanning all the other accounts. I wonder what you make of that and what your take is on on how that's been handled so far. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, obviously, he has been more protective of general free speech than the old regime. And that's been his principle, as far as I can tell, his argument for having bought this platform in the first place. I mean, it's a little fascinating to watch. I mean, as Catherine said, this is a for-profit company. It'd be like the four of us buying Coca-Cola and just opening up the vats and started pouring stuff in and see what happened. You know, I mean, that would be like a, a little bit of a high wire act, you know, because it's a for-profit company. You have to get people to buy it, the advertisers, as Catherine said. So it, from that perspective, it's it's kind of fascinating. And But but I think the way he's handled the decision-making is pretty true to the way uh, he presented it when he decided he wanted to buy it in the first place. Look, I, I'm not sure Twitter got all these bannings right in the first place. Remember, they once banned the oldest newspaper in the United States during a presidential election because they didn't like what they were tweeting out. And so... I think there's probably some people that need to be brought back. There's probably some people that uh, probably don't. Ultimately, though, for him, the bottom line is the bottom line. And whether advertisers stick with this or not is is whether or not uh, will determine, you know, whether this was successful. Hmm. Um, I got to ask you, listen, Scott, I know that you were a supporter of the former president. I'm not sure where you land on that now, but you didn't like his bombast. Mm-hmm. You didn't necessarily like the tweeting. And so for bringing all of these people back, I mean, do you think it should just be an open door policy Number one, and do you think the former president should start tweeting again? Uh, Great question. Uh, Well, where I am on it now, uh, just to be clear, is I think we need a new nominee. I think we've we've had enough. We we tried this twice. We didn't get more votes than the Democrats twice. So, just to clear that up, that's number one. Number two, if he wants to tweet, I don't have a problem with that. I I thought it was weird when they banned him in the first place. To be honest, when there are a lot of other uh, world figures who are you know far worse, in my opinion, than Donald Trump that are allowed to be on the platform. Uh, but he's got his own thing now. You know, he's got his own social media platform. And so I, I'm not sure it's in his best would kind of undermine interest that. to yeah. join another platform. So uh, but I don't have a problem if he's on there. Yeah. Well, contractually, it may be difficult yeah. for him to get on. We, I've been trying to talk to his team about this. It's not really clear what that is going to ultimately look like. I think he probably wants to get back on. Um, but we'll be watching to see and to see what happens next with Twitter, what steps Elon takes next. Scott Jennings, Catherine Rempel, thank you both for joining us. Happy belated Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving to you both, yeah. by the way. Good to see you. Hey, happy Thanksgiving, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. All right. This morning in Ukraine, there have been relentless attacks on infrastructure, critical infrastructure, including the power grid. It's raising a lot of concerns about a possible accident of one of the nuclear plants. Obviously, that is top of mind for so many officials. We're going to talk to the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg about this. That's next. Plus, Adidas dropped Kanye West, but the company says it plans to investigate allegations of misconduct against him. 
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Yesterday, for the first time ever, all of Ukraine's four operational nuclear power plants, Saporizhia, Rivne, South Ukraine, and Kremenitsky, lost external power and were disconnected from the grid. This unprecedented situation would have been unimaginable just months ago. That was ahead of IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, talking about Russia's attacks on Ukraine's battered power systems and fears that they could lead to an accident at one of its nuclear plants. Overnight, Russian strikes hit near Zaporizhia and the biggest nuclear plant in Europe. CNN Sam Kiley is in Zaporizhia right now. This is disturbing, and you heard what he said. It's unprecedented, Sam. It is unprecedented, except in Ukraine, where Zaporizhia, as you know, Don, has been the site of numerous shellings uh, just um, in the last couple of weeks. A lot of reports now that the IAEA have monitors actually inside the power station. We have independent verification. About four or five days ago, they reported a number of strikes close to and even inside the nuclear power plant's compound, not threatening uh, the reactors. It would take a great deal more than some kind of artillery strike to damage the reactors. But above all, the issue here is that the Russians are systematically attacking the energy grid right across the country. This country relies for 50% of its power on nuclear power. And to keep those reactors cool, to stop them melting down, they need external sources of electricity, ironically. So when that is broken, they have to go onto diesel backup generators to keep them cooling. And of course, they are extremely vulnerable. They are the last line of defense before the nuclear reactor uh, gets into serious trouble. And it is that that the the IAEA is drawing attention to, and then the much wider issue from the international community's perspective, and of course here in Ukraine, is that winter is approaching, uh, the power grid keeps getting knocked out by these mass attacks by cruise missiles from Russia, as Russia is losing essentially on the ground incrementally. There is ferocious fighting in the east, but in the uh, south, around Kherson, they have been pushed back, and they've reacted by trying to break the back of the energy structures in the country to undermine both the military effort but also to try to thump the civilians, essentially, of Ukraine into submission. I have to say, there's no signs of them bending, much less breaking so far, Don. All right, Sam Kylin, Zaporizhia, Ukraine for us this morning. Thank you very much, Sam. All right, in the wake of these attacks on Ukraine's infrastructure, its critical infrastructure, the European Union has voted to pass a resolution declaring Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. Poland's defense minister is calling for Germany to send the Patriot missile air defense systems directly to Ukraine. That's a request that Germany says would need to be discussed among the NATO member states. And the Hungarian leader, Viktor Orban, says his nation's parliament will vote to ratify NATO membership for Finland and Sweden. He says that will happen early next year. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg reiterated NATO's support for Ukraine just this morning. So NATO will continue to stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. We will not back down. And the Secretary General Stoltenberg joins us now. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to talk though about Hungary first off, saying it will ratify Finland and Sweden's NATO, sh NATO membership bids early next year. As you know, Hungary and Turkey are the only members of the alliance who have not yet cleared this. What's the risk in delaying it until early next year? 
So I'm confident that uh, both Hungary and uh, Turkey will uh, ratify the accession protocols for Finland and uh, Sweden. I cannot tell you exactly when, but we all have to remember that uh, all allies, including Turkey and Hungary, uh, made an historic decision in June this year to invite Finland and Sweden to become uh, members of the alliance, and all NATO allies uh, uh, signed the accession uh, protocols. And so far, uh, all of the 20, uh, 28 out of the 30 members have uh, ratified these protocols in the national uh, parliament. So uh, this is uh, uh, one of the fastest ever accession processes in NATO's history, and I'm confident that uh, that also the two remaining uh, parliaments will ratify uh, uh, so we ensure that Finland and Sweden becomes uh, full members. But is there a risk if they wait to ratify it until next year? We have to understand that Finland and Sweden they are in a very different place now than uh, before they applied, uh, because uh, 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 after they applied in May, uh, first of all, they are now participating as what we call invitees in uh, NATO's military and civilian activities uh, cooperation. Uh, NATO has increased its military presence uh, in the region, uh, in the Baltic region, and uh, several allies, including the United States, have issued uh, security assurances to uh, Finland and Sweden. So it's absolutely inconceivable that if Finland and Sweden were attacked or, or uh, were put under some uh, kind of uh, pressure, that uh, NATO would not uh, react. So, so we have come a long way all, already, uh, and, and again, uh, this process has so far gone uh, faster or quicker than uh, most other accession processes of uh, these lines. Germany has offered Poland its Patriot air defense systems. Of course, that came after that missile that was fired, landed in Poland, killed two citizens. But Polish officials are saying they actually want Germany to send those defense systems to Ukraine instead. Germany's defense minister says that deployment is something that would have to be agreed to by NATO. Is this something that you think NATO would agree to? So first of all, you have to remember that uh, NATO allies uh, have already provided significant uh, uh, air defense systems uh, to uh, uh, to Ukraine, uh, and uh, and we have also increased our uh, presence in the eastern part of the alliance, including in uh, in Poland. And I and I welcome the the, the German offer to. Uh, strengthen air defenses in uh, Poland uh, because that will uh, fit into what we have already done, uh, especially after the invasion in uh, in February. Uh, we have more troops on the ground, more uh, air and uh, naval assets, and, and a significant part of that is also uh, different types of air defense systems to uh, make sure that we are there to protect uh, and defend every inch of NATO territory, and by doing so we are also preventing escalation of the uh, conflict beyond uh, Ukraine. Uh, just this week, I was in uh, Spain. Uh, Spain uh, announced that they will provide more Hawk batteries. Um, NATO allies have provided NASAMS batteries, at advanced uh, uh, NATO air defense systems. Uh, at the final, at at the end, it will be a national decision on the specific capabilities. But I continue to call on allies to step up and provide even more air defenses uh, also for Ukraine. But is it more effective for these defense systems to go to Poland and be there close to the Ukrainian border or should they go straight to Ukraine in your view? Also, we need both. Uh, we need both increased air defense uh, of our uh, uh, NATO allies in the east, uh, in the Baltic countries, Poland, uh, Romania, uh, but also uh, we need 
uh, we need uh, more air defense uh, in uh, in Ukraine. That's obvious. We see the horrendous, uh, horrific uh, attacks every day against uh, uh, civilian infrastructure, against cities in Ukraine, and therefore we need to help Ukraine being able to shoot down those incoming Russian missiles and uh, and drones. And that's exactly what we are doing. Uh, but we should uh, further step up and. Uh, and, and that's my call to, to NATO allies. You've obviously seen the latest attacks from Russia continuing to go after essential services in Ukraine. We were talking earlier, they're having to perform heart surgery basically by flashlight in some situations. Do you believe that this is a Russian campaign of terror on Ukrainian civilians? What we see now is that uh, President uh, Putin is uh, trying to weaponize winter. Uh, and uh, uh, by indiscriminate, uh, deliberate attacks uh, on uh, uh, cities, on civilian infrastructure, uh, he tries to deprive uh, the Ukrainians uh, of uh, gas, heating, water. Uh, and this just demonstrates once again the brutality of this war and the importance of uh, President Putin, Russia, ending this war. The best way we can uh, 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 address uh, the, the horrific uh, scenes we see from Ukraine is to support Ukraine. And I would like to commend especially United States for providing uh, unprecedented uh, support to Ukraine, military support, humanitarian support, and also help them to repair uh, uh, the, the energy grid, uh, the, 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 the gas uh, infrastructure, uh, uh, in, uh, in addition to the air defense systems we are uh, providing. Um, and, and we do that because we, 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 we stand in solidarity with Ukraine, but also because it is in our own security interest uh, to ensure that President Putin uh, does not win uh, in Ukraine. Well, and speaking of what the end of this could look like, do you agree with the sentiment that you've heard from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, saying that the idea that it would be possible for Ukraine to completely push Russia out, it would be a very difficult task for the Ukrainians? The Ukrainians are by far paying the highest price for this war. Uh, what we do is measured in money. Uh, what they do is measured in uh, blood, uh, lost lives every day. Uh, so it has to be up to Ukraine to decide. And uh, we need to remember what, what, what this is. This is a war of aggression by Russia against an independent, sovereign, democratic nation in uh, Europe with internationally recognized borders. Um, NATO and NATO allies are not party to the conflict, but we help Ukraine to defend themselves. Uh, the right for self-defense is right enshrined in the UN uh, Charter. Most wars will end at the negotiating table. At the same time, we know that what happens around the negotiating table is dependent on the strength on the battlefield. Uh, so if we want uh, Ukraine to prevail as a sovereign independent state, we must provide military support to Ukraine. Uh, so uh, when the, there most likely will be some negotiations at some time, they're able to achieve a result uh, which ensures that they prevail as a democratic state in Europe. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, thank you for your time this morning. Adidas is launching an investigation into allegations that rapper Kanye West created a toxic environment and the company ignored complaints about it. We'll discuss. Three is going up against Booker. Booker not 
knocked it away. Reeves is down. Oh, oh there's Worth. Oh, in. Whoa. And that's over Aiton. Because of what you just saw there, Lakers guard Patrick Beverly is paying a price for shoving that in that incident. He has now been suspended for three games. And a new statement from the NBA says it was based in part on his history of unsportsmanlike acts on the court. In last year's Western Conference Finals, Beverly, who was then with the Clippers, pulled a similar move, shoving the Suns' Chris Paul in the back. Now he's facing the suspension after the incident that happened yesterday. And new this morning, Adidas launching an investigation into allegations of misconduct against Kanye West following a Rolling Stones magazine article that reported that Adidas board members ignored the rapper's inappropriate behavior. This comes after the company ended its partnership with the performer over a series of anti-Semitic remarks. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz is with us this morning. Um, good morning to you. Good morning, guys. A couple of things here. Sometimes you should just get out of the spotlight when you're having, when you're dealing yeah. with things like this. Because the hits just keep on coming for Kanye. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's back in the spotlight again because of these misconduct allegations against him. So Adidas is, is investigating. And this comes after the Rolling Stone uh, magazine reported that high-level employees at Yeezy sent a letter to the executive board of Adidas asking them to address, quote, the toxic and chaotic environment that Kanye West created. And also in this letter that was obtained exclusively by, the Rolling, by Rolling Stone, they, they go on to say that Adidas knew about this behavior and, cho- and chose to ignore it. So just yesterday, Adidas released a statement about all of this. They said, quote, and it is not currently clear whether the accusations made in an anonymous letter are true. However, we take these allegations very seriously and have taken the decision to launch an independent investigation of the matter immediately to address these allegations. And you guys know that uh, Kanye West and Adidas had a very successful partnership for about a decade. And after sort of an outcry of the public to end their relationship over anti-Semitic comments. They finally went on to do that about a month ago. But clearly, this relationship is not over as this investigation goes on. Yeah, and it's fascinating to see how, as more of these negative stories have come out about Kanye West, how people are learning more. Uh, people who've worked with him for a long time saying, actually, it's not that surprising that he made these comments, that he's making this now and saying this publicly, because he has a history of saying that in the past. Yeah, it's a, they're saying there's a pattern there. It's not one incident. There's a pattern. And, you know, Kanye West, we have not heard from him on this yet. We have not heard from him publicly. He also doesn't have a publicist or an attorney representing him on this matter. So, but let's, you know, let's not uh, forget that Kanye West does like to come out publicly and talk about all of this. So we could could see something from him soon, just we haven't heard from him on this specific issue yet. It's a problem with people giving him a platform. And sometimes, again, you know, I know people who are in, who are at very high profile yeah. positions and when they're going through things, you don't exacerbate it by offering them more opportunities to hurt themselves mm-hmm. in the media. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Thank you, Vanessa. I appreciate it. Thank you. The Artemis One mission making its closest approach to the moon this week, and the pictures are worth the trip. Plus, actress Margot Robbie revealing what she did to calm her nerves before shooting a graphic scene with the co-star Leonardo DiCaprio. Revealing behind-the-scenes moment from the Martin Scorsese film The Wolf of Wall Street, actress Margot Robbie, Robbie confessing that she needed some liquid courage before she shot that nude scene with her co-star, Leonardo DiCaprio. Margot was speaking at an event for the British Academy of Film and Television. She said, quote, 
I'm not going to lie, I had a couple shots of tequila before that scene because I was nervous, very nervous. I know it sounds silly now, knowing how big the movie became, but at the time I thought, no one is going to notice me in this film. Margot Robbie said she questioned if she wanted to continue being an actress after working on The Wolf of Wall Street because according to The Hollywood Reporter at the same event, she said that her work in I, Tanya, the movie is Tanya Harding, was the moment that made her feel like she was a good actress. She was that really, really was good great. in that movie. Marco so, Robbie, have you seen yourself? Way. You didn't think you would get noticed in that movie? Come <laughs> on. All right, let's talk about space now. The biggest test yet this weekend for NASA's Artemis mission, the Orion spacecraft made its closest approach to the moon this week and sent these new images of the moon's surface back to Earth before it enters something called distant retrograde orbit. Just give me a second. I'm not looking at the prompter. I just want to see these pictures. Uh, joining us now to explain what that means is Columbia University physics professor Brian Green. He's also the founder of the World Science Festival. Good morning to you. Morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank Caitlin is all about it, asking you a million questions in the commercial break here. Before you guys get into it, because I know you're going to want to get into it, is this, has there been a resurgence uh, in interest in space and also with the United States doing it? Because before it was just like kind of the space cowboys and the rockets, you know, the Bezos and, and, and the Tesla owners yeah. uh, of the world. Is there a resurgence here? Absolutely. You know, back in the, in the 60s and 70s, it was all about, you know, the political race, you know, beating the Soviet Union to the moon. And once we got there, mm -hmm. the kind of drive dissipated a bit. But now it really is in the service of exploration, trying to take the next step beyond Earth to the moon and then ultimately to Mars and beyond. These pictures, these images we're looking at, are they really great quality? Are they yeah, fascinating? Yeah, what did you learn from these? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an amazing mission, this, this powerful rocket. This approach is 81 miles from the surface of the moon, wonderful resolution, and it's just the beginning, right? Yeah. This is just the first step. And when we start to send crewed missions and we start to land on the moon and start to drill and understand and have a permanent outpost, that's where the excitement really will begin. But these can I just are the ask closest... a favor before you jump in? Can you guys yeah. put the pictures behind him so I can see him as they're talking about it? Sorry, go ahead, Caitlin. Well, these are the closest images of the moon that we've ever had, right? Uh, well, we've been to the surface itself, right. so that's pretty close. Right, but, but yeah, the pictures But in 50 years, this is the closest we've gotten. Yeah. Absolutely. And what's happening today with the spacecraft entering the lunar orbit? What, is, what does that mean? I know people yeah. can watch it. That'll be interesting, what is, but what does it mean? Yeah, actually, at 4.52 p.m. is when this is going to happen. So every Best Buy and Walmart should have this on the TV screen <laughs> so people can see it during Black Friday. But the, the Orion spacecraft is going to thrust into an orbit around the moon. It's going to be a 50,000 or so mile orbit. So it's going to be the most distant craft that could carry human beings that we've ever sent up into space. For six days, it's going to go in half of a large orbit, and then it's going to resume its journey back to Earth. Okay, I worry that there's a timing conflict because I think that's going to be while the USA and England are playing. Yeah. And guitar, so we'll see <laughs> break what, in. Just we'll break see what in. the stores decide to air. Yes. But um, it's super interesting. But the, so how close are we looking at here? Because it's like, I mean, is this like, do you know, I, I don't yeah. know. I have to turn on myself to see this now. Uh, yeah, so this is the 81-mile shot. And, you know, that's an amazing achievement. To that's 81 miles. Yeah, yeah, that's the closest approach. And it's, again, just the start. You know, the, the goal is to learn from these images and this first flight. This is Artemis 1. A year or two from now, Artemis 2 is going to take a crew up. They're not going to land. And then maybe in 2025, Artemis 3, I think it's going to be on 2025, frankly, yeah. will actually land the first woman, first person of color on the moon. That's the goal. 
and then ultimately have some permanent outpost. But this all it paves the way also for Mars, Yeah, that's right? what this is all about. Moon is nearby. We can test out humans in space again with all the detailed technology that needs to make it safe, and then ultimately on to Mars. Yeah, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. And look, here's what I, th- this is just me. Yeah, sure. I'm not a, you know, astronaut, scientist, physicist, what? whatever. No, not at all. Well, we thought you were. So, um, obviously, there's some kind of life out there, but we just probably don't know how to recognize that life, right? It doesn't mean that it's obviously human, right? It's a different type of life. When do you think we get to that point where we kind of figure that part out? Yeah, I don't know. And it's not so obvious to me. I get the idea. There's so many planets and so much space out there. How could there not be some form of life out there? But who knows? Maybe life is a one-off event that happened in the cosmos and we are the seed. That will then spread life, hopefully better than we've done so far. Well, on I Earth. mean, life the way we know, recognize yeah. it. I mean, obviously, the, there's, it's a living yeah. solar system and the living galaxies. You poetically, what I'm saying? poetically. But yeah. if we're talking about life as replicating molecules that have come together in these complex forms, I don't know that there's right. another mm. instance. But my gut feeling is you're right, that there is other life out there. But here's the big question. Is there intelligent life out there, right? Life is one thing, but on our planet, if the asteroid hadn't wiped out the dinosaurs, they might still be walking around. And would they be here having an interview? I don't know. Or would they still just be foraging out in the forest? No velociraptors allowed on set. Exactly. So that's the question. Life versus intelligent life. Yeah. Professor. Buzzkill. Come on, we can have velociraptors, no? Have you seen Jurassic Park? <laughs> I think you missed, like, what happens in the movie because you don't want the velociraptors on set. <laughs> Professor, we love having you on set, though, so thank that you was so fun. much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And good luck. I don't know what happened to your hand, but... Yeah, it'll get better. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Up next, we're live at a pub in London. Now, that is dangerous, where England and USA fans are gathering <laughs> to watch the big World Cup match. And a miraculous rescue operation for a man. He went overboard from a Carnival cruise ship, spent 12 hours in the water. We're going to talk to the Coast Guard's search and rescue mission coordinator about that dramatic rescue next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Tonight, the National Dog Show Best in Show winner is... The French Bulldog. Oh, David, you were right. <laughs> and look at this. <laughs> no one happier. They have cornered the market on energy and <laughs> What? What were you saying? The dog is going to have, like, shaken babies. <laughs> shaken doggy syndrome. They were so excited. That's Winston. Winston's a French Bulldog. His owner, Perry Mason Winston. Perry Mason, I should say, Winston won best in show at the 21st National Dog Competition. He's the first of the breed to ever win top honors, beating out hundreds of other canines, the most watched dog show in the country. So just paint a picture of how competitive this is. These dogs sometimes train for years to win this title. It's crazy. It's pretty cute. Yeah, I know. Winston. Winston. Let's hope Winston is okay. Whoa! (laughs) A lot of excitement there. (laughs) So the holiday season is here, right? Yes. And you know what that means? Classic movies. All right. Well. And TV specials are back. It's such a good time of year to watch. It's like nostalgia lane. And this year, CNN is bringing you a look at all of your favorites. Here's what we've got on deck. Christmas movies and television specials are always about someone who has lost their faith in humankind, regaining it. 
Christmas Story is one of the best movies about nostalgia, family, and Christmas. I watch it every year at least twice. It's the script of my life. It's hard to beat Home Alone. Just the fun and the hijinks. It is on the Mount Rushmore of holiday movies. I lost myself in Miracle on 34th Street. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation was capturing how the holidays make us all insane. There is that consistent Christmas element in Elf of change, of realization. Watch a good Christmas show, and it doesn't matter when it was made. These ideas don't get old. Unwrap the stories behind everything we love to watch at Christmas. A two-hour special event. Tis the season, the holidays on screen. And tis the season, the holidays on screen. Premieres Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. What's your favorite Christmas song? Uh, oh, I got some. Uh, so, um, Donny Hathaway, This Christmas. Oh, that's this a good one. Christmas, fireside's blazing bright. And Charles Brown, Please Come Home for Christmas. If not for Christmas. I think rocking around the Christmas tree is my favorite. Right dun, Speaking dun, of Home Alone. Rocking around the Christmas tree? Yeah. Rocking around the Christmas tree. Yeah. That's Patsy Klein, right? I thought it was Brenda. Is it Brenda? Brenda Lee. Brenda Lee. Brenda Lee. Thank you for that. All right. What else do we have? Well, we still got a couple seconds here before the top of the show. Favorite Christmas songs. I like the Stevie Wonder Christmas album. Stevie Wonder is a good Everything one. Everything is good. I like, um, what's his name? Burl Ives. Anything Burl Ives. Puts you right in the Christmas mood. The control room wants some justice for Mariah Carey, saying she's got to be mentioned here. I actually like Ariana Grande's Christmas songs. <laughs> I'm such a millennial. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Mariah Carey's good. I mean, it's, good. it's become a classic over the years. The Jackson's Christmas album, uh, very good as well. Luther has a great Christmas album. And Motown does a really great Christmas album. Have you been listening to Christmas music already, or do you wait till today like I, I do? I do wait on the Christmas music. Till because it can... It's Christmas... Music for me is like a Bloody Mary. You can only have, you can only do it for so long because there's so much tomato juice. So you can have one Bloody Mary, maybe two. Christmas is like last music lasts maybe three to four weeks, and then you're like, okay, I can't really do it anymore. Yeah, there's a time. Of, a time I gotta ask it. you, this is weird. Do you watch? There's some channels that have like the Christmas movies on like year round. Do you mm -hmm. ever do that? I know people who watch those Christmas movies on those channels year round. There's some Christmas movies that I'll watch that are like Christmas adjacent movies, but not like primarily Christmas movies. I would not watch that. Speaking of, what's the movie, the uh, Bruce Willis movie that everyone says, Die is Hard. it Die Hard? Is it a Christmas movie? Yes, it is. I, I'm not getting in on this. Christmas movie? It's too early for that. All right, we got to go. It's <laughs> top of the hour. We got to get the news in. All right, see it in this morning. Continues right now. So good morning, everyone. As you can tell, it is the day after Thanksgiving. We're in a bit of a holiday mood here, yep. a little light, but we have some big news to tell you about. It is Friday, November 25th. Poppy Harlow is off, and there is a lot to get to this morning, including yep. this fascinating story. And I think we need to check on this because they say it's 12 hours. Man, that seems like a long time to be stuck in water. A passenger who went overboard from a Carnival cruise ship rescued by the U.S. Coast Guard in the Gulf of Mexico. In a moment, we're going to speak to the Coast Guard officer who led the dramatic rescue mission. Also this morning, an arrest warrant has been issued in Mexico after an American woman died while vacationing with six friends. We'll have the latest details on that there. Cowboys owner Jerry Jones responding to a 1957 photo showing him in the crowd as white students protested against integration at an Arkansas high school. A member of the Little Rock Nine who integrated another school that same month is going to join us. 
in Colorado Springs, rallying around the LGBTQ community there, how they kept the Thanksgiving tradition keep going in spite of the tragedy that happened at Club Q. But we're going to begin with the huge showdown coming up in just a few hours from the World Cup, right? The U.S. versus England, soccer versus football. It is a rare meeting of the two sides and a big test for the United States squad. They're hoping to be the latest team to pull off an upset in a tournament that has been all about the upset. CNN's Anna Stewart is at the at Box Park uh, to tell us what's happening. This is going to be major viewing all over the world, not just in the United States, not just in the UK, but all over the world. Wait a minute. How did you get this assignment? You're inside of a bar. I've been a bar all day, Don, but you know what? Top secret, I don't really like football, but for today, I certainly do. This is one of the biggest viewing areas in East London, Box Park Shoreditch. There are lots of different rooms here. Tickets sold out days ago to watch this game tonight. There is quite a lot of confidence, as you can probably imagine, from England. Some may even go as far to say it's maybe a little bit of arrogance. England feels like the spiritual home of football. You can see it certainly in the tabloids today. We have the Sun, Will Kane, Yanks. Don't know how you feel about that one. We also have the Daily Star with Bunk Off Friday. I am hearing, Don, that the offices in the UK, up and down the country, pretty quiet today. I think a lot of people doing a bit of work from home ahead of this match. The thing is, I am told there is something of a curse for Team England when it comes to matches against the US in World Cups. 2010, they drew. 1950, they lost. They do have to get past that. I identify more as a Scot myself, and I slightly, only ever so slightly, Don, and I'll keep it quiet around here, slightly hope that Team USA wins to avoid some scenes that we saw here earlier this week when England won. Take a look at this. Yeah. You might need an umbrella for that. I know. Were, were they excited there? They're a little bit excited. <laughs> Anna, thank you very much. Be safe. Have fun, okay? All right. Now to this this morning. It was a miraculous rescue operation. U.S. Coast Guard somehow located a man who went overboard on a Carnival cruise ship that set sail from New Orleans. It was headed for Mexico. The man's sister reported the man missing at about noon on Thursday. He was last seen at a bar on board the boat around 11 p.m. the night before. So joining us now is Lieutenant Seth Cross. Gross, he is the Coast Guard Search and Rescue Coordinator who conducted this mission. This is absolutely fascinating. And first, we just want to know how he's doing, but also how you found him. Yeah, good morning, and thank you for having me. So uh, currently, at last known, his condition is unstable um, as he's receiving additional evaluation at a local uh, hospital. So he is. Listen, Lieutenant, question for you, because we've been saying that he was missing for 12 hours. Um, or he was in the water for 12 hours. Can you clarify for us? Because 12 hours sounds like a long time to be in the water. Yes, sir. Absolutely incredible. So, you know, the Coast Guard received their initial notification yesterday at 2.30 in the afternoon, uh, reporting that a potential man overboard from the Carnival Valor as they made their way outbound the Mississippi. Uh, we have not been able to confirm when he entered the water. So we're under the assumption any point from 11 p.m. on Wednesday on, uh, he could have uh, entered the, the waterway. 
So he, he realistically could have been in the water for 15 plus hours before we were able to successfully rescue him. Oh, my God. Can you kind of just walk us through, if you get a report like this uh, of someone who has fallen overboard, someone who is missing, how do you find them in the waters? Yeah, every case is different. And this one was especially complex. So given the time difference between when he was last seen to when the Coast Guard received notification, um, we knew that communication with the mariners in the Gulf of Mexico was going to be critical. So we issue out a broadcast, a safety net message, and an urgent marine information broadcast. That essentially alerts all mariners operating in the Gulf of Mexico of our situation. Um, in addition, we launched all available resources to try to get on scene, um, understanding that time was paramount. So we had a, a small boat out of Venice. We had a Coast Guard helicopter out of New Orleans and an airplanes out of Clearwater and Mobile. So listen, just for clarity here. You have you spoken to him as anyone? I imagine the doctors are able to talk to him. Is in any condition to speak? Because he could clarify. I would think what time he went in the water, with the conditions, how long he was in there. You know what I'm saying, Lieutenant? Yeah, absolutely. And details certainly to follow. So um, right now he is, you know, undergoing additional medical evaluation. I did speak with his family, who's on board the Carnival Valor. Um, one of those memories which, uh, which will stay with me for a long time. So, you know, details to come as, as we kind of learn more about his circumstance. Um, but, you know, obviously a huge testament to the working relationship that the Coast Guard has with the Mariners in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and then obviously the training and commitment and professionalism of the Coast Guard men and women uh, really resulted in this successful outcome we're all thrilled about. Have you ever rescued someone who's been in, in the water for this long? What's, it, what's the longest period? I'll be honest with you, you know, 17 year career, this case is uh, unlike anything I've been a part of. So, you know, I, I think it kind of blows the norm, uh, the normalcy out of the water here uh, and really just shows the will to live is, is something that you need to account for in every search and rescue case. And how long could someone realistically, you know, speaking of this is something you haven't seen, how long could someone realistically survive treading water? You know, I couldn't say definitively. I think a lot of it depends on, on the individual, the water temperature, the sea state, the currents and wind. Um, this is, like I said, one of the absolute longest that I've heard about. Um, and just one of those Thanksgiving miracles. Yeah. Well, the water in the Gulf, a little bit warmer. So I don't know. Do you know what the temperature was, Lieutenant? No. Yeah. So I think the temperature reported to me was just above 70 degrees That's um, not so bad. last night. Yeah. Not so bad and a little bit colder in the river. You know, and I do think it's important to note that we had over uh, 200 miles of active search in the, in the Gulf of Mexico. So when the uh, motor vessel Crinus uh, came upon him and, and vectored in the helicopter, um, just a, a huge success story. Yeah. This wow. is absolutely amazing. It I is mean, a holiday miracle, like he said. It right? is a holiday miracle. And I know you said you spoke to that man's family. I'm sure they are so grateful for your efforts. And, and thank you for coming on, Lieutenant Seth Gross, to, to talk about this with us and tell us what happened. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, obviously a team effort, but thrilled, thrilled with the successful save. You and your team did amazing work. So thank you. So authorities in Mexico have gotten an arrest warrant and have started the extradition process after a 25-year-old Shanquilla Robinson of North Carolina was found dead last month at a place that she and six friends had rented in Cabo San Lucas. CNN's Ryan Young joins us with more details on this. Ryan, this is, I mean, the, an unusual story. What progress are they making on this? I understand that they, they have someone extradited. What's going on here? 
Well, they're working on that right now, Don. You know as much as I do sometimes, black social media can be pretty strong. This story went viral pretty quickly after this incident. So many questions about exactly what happened here. And there's a piece of video that we would love to show you, but we haven't got it authenticated yet, but it's, it's all over social media. And what you see in this social media video is someone beating someone and hitting them over and over. And apparently someone from that villa shared it. Now, we actually talked to Shaquilla Robinson's father, and he confirmed that he thinks it's his daughter in the video. I've watched the video myself, and you can see her not even fighting back to the person who's hitting her over and over. At some point, authorities are called to this location where this disturbing video was shot, and she's unresponsive. And apparently, she suffered some sort of spinal injury, a severe spinal injury. And as you can imagine, the friends returned back to North Carolina uh, having conversations with the parents at some point before the funeral, and then they were, took a turn. Obviously, the Mexican authorities are looking into this. They put that uh, extradition um, uh, movement in. But here is the thing so far. They have not released the name. We don't know what friend it is. And as you can imagine for friends in Charlotte, they are upset about exactly where we are now and can't believe this happened. Take a listen. I'm glad that, that it's getting the attention that it needs because I wish it was like this from day one. I'm more so disappointed that she was around people that she thought were her friends. Clear with our viewers, this happened back in October 28th, so you can understand there's been a large gap here. The FBI is involved, the Mexican authorities are involved. We're hoping to get a name of somebody or maybe a mugshot in sometime soon, but you had those friends sitting in there. Should have been a great time, should have been a time for people to enjoy their vacation, but instead now there's this homicide investigation involving someone who didn't even seem to be fighting back when they were being hit over and over again. Ryan, Doc. please stay on top of the story. Thank you very much. I appreciate yeah. it. All right, this morning it is Black Friday, which is typically the biggest shopping day of the year. But rising inflation and slowing consumer confidence have tempered the expectations that economists had for what it could look like. It's also forced retailers to put a lot of those deals out much earlier. CNN's Allison Kosick joins us live. She's at the Macy's flagship store in New York City. So, Allison, you know, we were talking to you this morning. There are a lot of people there early on. What are you seeing so far? What are you hearing from consumers about, about their concerns about the economy? Caitlin, yeah, if you had any doubts that Black Friday shoppers in-store were no more, I'm here to tell you, proof is, in-store shopping is happening, at least here at this iconic Macy's store in Herald Square. I think a lot of people, as you saw um, on that video there that you showed, the couple hundred people waiting outside in the dark, uh, in the cold, to come in here when doors open. They just want to come in, touch the product, feel it. It's like something new, right, instead of just going online. Still, um, just today, Black Friday shoppers expected to reach 115 million across the country. Half of those are expected to shop in-store. But as you know, um, many people love to shop online as well. One Macy's exec I talked with said lots of people like to do it both ways. Listen. I think we have a, a really big base of consumers that shop online, but we also have a lot of consumers that shop in stores, and our best customers shop both of them. They really shop by their, their situation, they shop by their occasion, and that's why we spend so much time and energy on being an omni-channel retailer that allows our customer to use all of the different options that we offer whenever it's most convenient for them. 
And Caitlin, you mentioned inflation and how that's impacting the shopper. And yes, inflation, higher prices on just about everything. It's taken some of the spending power away from the consumer. But I went ahead and talked with several shoppers who said they're, they're staying positive. They're sticking to their budgets. They're looking for deals, something like this, uh, special 60% off the original price. This is kind of what they're factoring in when making their decisions on what to buy this holiday season. The National Retail Federation, it is being upbeat as well, saying that spending is expected to increase 8% over last year, adding up to about $940 billion in holiday spending for November and December. Caitlin? Allison Cossack, thank you. So many Republicans condemning the Colorado Springs shooting on an LGBTQ nightclub that left five dead. But has the rhetoric of some of those lawmakers contributed to the rise in attacks against the LGBTQ community? Well, we're going to ask the author, educator, and husband of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg a couple questions about that. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The community in Colorado Springs has rallied around Club Q, which was the site, of course, of the shooting that left five people dead. Every year, this club prepared a Thanksgiving meal together. It's a tradition that they say goes back 10 years. And after the shooting, the questions remained about whether or not they were actually going to go through with the dinner still. A local church, though, stepped up to host an event for Club Q. And with the help from volunteers and donations from local businesses, there was a huge Thanksgiving meal that was available to a community that is very much still grieving. So many people are coming together because they care about this community. They care about what's coming out of this community. They're not looking at it as black, white, gay, straight. They are looking at it as this is my community. This comes as President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden called the two owners of Club Q on Thanksgiving to offer their condolences and their support after speaking with the hero, so I want everyone to sit down and watch this because I know it's going to be fascinating and to just talk about all the facets that we're dealing with when it comes to this story and stories like them. Joining us now is author and educator Chastin Buttigieg. He is married to the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Chastin, thank you so much uh, for joining us and happy belated Thanksgiving to you. Good morning. Same to you. Thanks for having me. You, you have been outspoken on these issues. After what happened in Colorado Springs and what these families are dealing with, mm -hmm. how are you feeling? What's important to you this morning? Yeah, you know, uh, it's tough. It's hard and it's, it's, it's definitely hard being, um, being in a position to watch people continuously attack your community. And it's happened again, right? After Pulse... Our community was shattered um, and, and seeing this happen again uh, and seeing what's happening uh, with, with the rhetoric surrounding it um, is certainly painful. Can we talk about the rhetoric surrounding it? Because, uh, listen, a lot of, uh, especially lately, a lot of politicians have been using gay people, not just lately, but um, it's ramped up, it ramped up during the midterms, using mm -hmm. gay people as political pawns in their messaging, in their ads, uh, and things that they're trying to get accomplished and trying to roll back certain um, issues. How do you respond? Yeah, certainly it's uncomfortable watching them try to have it both ways. Uh, they spent the entire midterms, and they've, for many of them, they've spent their entire time here in Washington 
uh, attacking the LGBTQ community, uh, attaching awful, terrible labels uh, to any LGBTQ person, attacking trans people specifically. Uh, and then something like Club Q happens uh, and they want to send us our thoughts and prayers. Uh, and I know these Congress members understand that words have meaning. There's power in the way we use our words for good or for bad. And they have created a very dangerous atmosphere for LGBTQ people with their language. Uh, and, and then something like this happens. Uh, and, they, and they quickly jump on social media and say thoughts and prayers. How awful. They can't have it both ways and they need to wake up uh, and understand that their ideology and their rhetoric and their language is hurting people. Mm. What do you say to members of the community who are frustrated with the hate out there? I share in your frustration, but I also want to say, I believe that folks on the MAGA right, the people who have these megaphones on social media or here in Congress, are a very, very vocal minority. You have to understand and remember that the majority of Americans believe in LGBTQ equality. The majority of Americans are with us. The majority of Americans believe uh, in marriage equality. The majority of Americans believe that trans people should be respected and protected. Uh, these folks just have really big megaphones on social media. And I think it's a good time to remember that not everyone's spending their days on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, they're going about their lives. Uh, and these are folks who, rather than focusing on getting things done, rather than coming to Washington and focusing on solutions, have just decided to focus on us. Mm -hmm. Listen, Chastin, normally um, I don't like to give uh, things like this oxygen, but I think it's really important, one, because of what's happening, two, because you responded to it, and it was a, a, a direct <laughs> um, criticism and attack on your husband. This is Fox News' Tucker Carlson attacking your husband and about this tragedy. Watch this. Pete Buttigieg wants to talk about identity. He always wants to talk about identity. And the funny, ironic thing is, until just a few years ago, Buttigieg wouldn't even admit that he was gay. He hid that and then lied about it for reasons he has never been asked to explain. Why not? But whatever. Now he is happy to use his sexual orientation as a cudgel to bash you repeatedly in the face into submission. Okay, so listen, uh, it's obvious the policy was called don't ask, don't tell. And I think it's sort of self-explanatory there. But you responded to this criticism with this post, this of your husband waving in his military uniform. What did you mean with that picture? Oh, I meant what you just said. Uh, my husband served under don't ask, don't tell, which meant that he would have been discharged from the American military had he come out of the closet. Uh, I know in the clip, uh, Tucker Carlson goes on to talk about how uh, it seems that my husband only wants to talk about identity rather than uh, his job. Uh, and I would just love for him to follow uh, Secretary Pete on Twitter. Uh, he can follow along all of the things that are happening at the department. But remember, this kind of rhetoric is easy. It's so easy to attack people uh, and, and to go on your talk show uh, and fire people up about something that's, that's not actually happening. Uh, I love my husband deeply. I know he's a committed public servant uh, and he has everyone's best interest at heart. I just think these people, again, with these megaphones, uh, they, have, they have a big platform and rather than focusing on real issues, people's lives, making them better, uh, they've decided to focus on hate. Mm -hmm. 
Listen, I like to focus on the reality of America, and that is there are members, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender community who are doing things and having um, great interactions with their families and sitting around and, you know, talking about all of these issues. Uh, I was I'm a member of a family like that and understand you have twins now. And I am wondering how you spent yes. your Thanksgiving and was it great? And did they <laughs> eat way too much? I hope they did. Oh, they can they can polish a plate quite well. Thanks for asking. <laughs> we had a lovely day. Uh, they they are walking and talking and, and the most beautiful babbling, you know, having conversations with you, but there aren't words yet. We're destroying everything uh, that we can get our hands on. So uh, it's lovely to have this time to spend together as a family. Uh, yeah. And without bringing too much politics into it, I know that we're on the precipice of a marriage equality vote. Uh, and for any any senator out there who's wondering whether, you know, they should vote yes or no, I invite them to get to know my family. Uh, spend, spend some time with us the way we spent our Thanksgiving yesterday. Just, just a family doing everything that everybody else was doing, you know, mm -hmm. spending time on the floor, playing the toys, eating a good meal, mm -hmm. uh, and enjoying our time together. That's why I brought it up, and it's a good thing to end on. You're right about the marriage equality bill, and um, listen, I think it's wonderful uh, to see your family. Um, I know that it's tough when you are married to a politician to talk about these sorts of social issues independently of that, but um, I think in, in this day and age, people would say that it's definitely necessary when you consider what's happening with the hate that's out there. Cheston, best of luck to you. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving and happy Thank holidays you. to you. Regards to your husband as well. Same to you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. So Jerry Jones responding to a 1957 photo that has reemerged showing the Dallas Cowboys owner among a crowd of white students trying to keep black students from uh, integrating an Arkansas high school. Coming up, we're going to talk to a member of the Little Rock Nine, a group of black students who integrated another Arkansas high school that same month, just miles away. All right, the Washington Post has unearthed this photo from 1957. In it, of course, the person who is circled there is Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones. He's among a crowd of white students who were confronting black students as they were attempting to enter the North Little Rock High School. Jones was asked about that photo, why he was in it, what, what it meant after the Cowboys Thanksgiving game yesterday. This is what he said. That was, uh, uh, gosh, uh, 60. 65 years ago, and a uh, uh, curious kid. Uh, I didn't know at the time the uh, monumental uh, 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 event, really, that was, that was going on. And uh, uh, I'm sure glad that uh, uh, we're a long way from that, I am. And um, uh, we just, uh, well, that would remind me, just uh, uh, continue to do everything we can uh, to uh, uh, not have those kinds of things happen. Jerry, do you understand the perception that people have of you standing there? Because that was not exactly a welcoming committee that day. Yeah, I sure do. And I understand that. Mm. That photo was taken just weeks, of course, before the Little Rock Nine integrated a separate school, Little Rock Central High School. At the time, President Eisenhower had dispatched federal troops to help escort the nine black students past those resisting them entering the school. It became a pivotal moment in the civil rights movement. So joining us now to talk about this is a member of the Little Rock Nine, Ernest Green. And Ernest, good morning and thank you for being with us. And I think first off, we just want to get your reaction to, to what Jerry Jones said as he's explaining his presence in that photo. Well, good morning to both of you. 
and to the audience. Well, my view is that Jerry Jones has an opportunity to uh, make that uh, picture have a different ending by uh, pursuing uh, diversity and uh, inclusion and involvement of uh, the African-American community, of people of color uh, all throughout this country. Uh, Dallas Cowboys is uh, an institution that uh, most Americans know something about it. Uh, professional football is a, uh, 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 an entity that uh, everybody has some uh, interest in, and I think that uh, rather than talk to Jerry about what happened in 1957, uh, let's go forward and see what we can do in, in uh, this year. Mm. I think it's a, listen, I have to tell you, Mr. Green, thank you so much for doing this. Good morning to you. Happy Thanksgiving. It is indeed an honor to be on um, with you because of people like you in large part is why, how, why I'm able to be able to sit in the seat and, and do what I do. So I think it's tremendous that you want to stay in the present and move forward. But if you look at the, that picture and the faces in that crowd, you, faces, you faced similar faces. You saw those people. Those people grew up to be adults, many of them still alive today, uh, functioning in this society. So for those faces, like the Jerry Jones and others that you witness, what's your message to them right now? Well, uh, that uh, they have an opportunity today to write, to make that picture a different outcome, uh, to show that uh, this can be a country that involves people, not wants to keep them out. I mean, the reason I went to Central High School was when it was near, nearer to me than the school that I was attending, and two, that uh, Central had more classes, diversity of classes. Uh, they had physics. We didn't have physics. Uh, all of that was to show that uh, uh, a segregated life in Arkansas uh, was not something that was going to have a good outcome. And I think today, uh, as head of the Dallas Cowboys, uh, he has a opportunity to uh, uh, have a tremendous impact on expanding opportunities in this country. And that's, that's been a big question. Is, is he using his role... That's been the question kind of raised. Is, is yeah. he using his role and to, to further black coaches, to elevate them, not just Jerry Jones, but other organizations in the NFL? Because that's been, it seems like a big blind spot for them. Well, and I think you're right. I mean, the article that uh, I read showed that uh, while the Cowboys have an uh, African-American quarterback, uh, they did. I have followed it daily. Uh, part ownership, uh, an opportunity to bring in uh, uh, black coaches and people of color, uh, all of that is uh, within their grasp. And, and Jerry Jones is somehow, uh, he has more attention on him 
than many of the other owners. Uh, he's a pacemaker. He, he can set the tone, and I hope he will. I hope he'll use this as a stepping stone and uh, not, not a rock to throw at somebody. But I, I, I applaud you, Don, for uh, raising this uh, because the uh, NFL sets a, a tone for more than just a sports. Uh, it, it really is, sets a tone for the country as a whole and going forward is what we need. We need more involvement of the business community. We need to be able to uh, show that uh, there's a relationship between education and success. Uh, all of this is tied together, and, and I, I think uh, uh, Jerry Jones would uh, have an opportunity to try and right a wrong. Well, I think you're right. If you look at the change that's often made through sports with Jackie Robinson, uh, with Arthur Ashe, with Muhammad Ali, Walmart Rudolph, and all of those people who, who broke barriers uh, in this country, and they did it through sports, you did it through you know, integrating schools. I'm so honored and, and happy that you're here to give us some perspective, Ernest Green. Thank you so much. You be well. Thank you, and, and I wish everybody a great holiday season. Yeah. Thank you, Ernest. Thank you. Uh, it's amazing to be able to speak with people like him. It's right? such good perspective yeah. Yeah. on a conversation that obviously was relevant then, but is still relevant today. Right on. All right. We've also got some interesting news here. You know that old rule you've got to drink eight glasses of water a day? Oh, yeah. That's Don's water. got multiple <laughs> coffee mugs. We'll tell you whether or not it's actually true. It's water. Okay, you might have been told that you need to drink eight glasses of water a day, but is that fact or fiction? There's a new study published in the journal Science that took a look at just how much water people are consuming daily versus what they actually need. Here to share those results with us is CNN senior medical correspondent, correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, I have been drinking eight glasses of water, so I would like to know if this is true or not. <laughs> It's not. Sorry, Caitlin. I mean, I'm sure it hasn't done you any uh, any damage, but it is an adage. There is no science behind it. The CDC says there's no specific recommendation for how much any one given person should drink because the needs vary so much. No one's actually sure where this whole eight glasses a day thing came from. Anyhow, Caitlin, Don. What? Thank you, Elizabeth Cohen. I've always wondered <laughs> I that because I, I don't drink eight glasses of water a day. Plus, I would be in and out of the bathroom. Isn't it funny how it gets in your brain and you're like, it's science. Yeah, I see people carrying around water bottles. That's right. I'm like, what? Oh, those huge, like, jugs. <laughs> so how much water should we be drinking? Well, because there isn't any specific recommendation, this study did something really interesting. They took 5,600 people, international study, and they gave them water that was marked with isotopes and they could see how much their body was actually using. And what they saw was mm. that people actually used four to 25 cups a day. It's a huge range. It depended on their physical activity, their gender. Men seem to need more water than women. Also on their weight and on the climate. Were they in a hot and humid place? Okay, so not including tea, milk, anything else you might get, a, or a tea, coffee, anything like that. When it's just pure water, how much should people be drinking per day? You know, it's so hard to say, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit sort of uh, gross here for a minute. I think we ought to leave aside this whole number of glasses of water and tell you to look at your pee. 
That's really what you need to do. You need to look at your pee. The Cleveland Clinic lays this out so beautifully on their website, and I'm going to share a part of it with you. They say if your pee is the color of like pale straw, you're a winner. That's it. That's what you're aiming for. If it's amber or honey colored, you're mildly dehydrated. If it's syrupy or like brown ale, kind of like a dark beer, that's bad. That's dehydration. You should rehydrate, drink as much water as you you know feel like you can, and see it. If it doesn't change, you maybe should go to the doctor. This is so well known in hot weather countries that in Israel, for example, they've made up a song that every school child knows to look at their pee. I'll sing, I'll sing you just the first line. I'll spare you the rest. But it's pipi tzachov lo tov. If you've got yellow pee, that's not good. Any school child can tell you that. We all need to learn that. <laughs> I don't think I don't know if you can see Don Elizabeth, but he's laughing look, so hard right now. Look at your pee. Don learned that song growing up. Elizabeth, it's true. I have worked with you for 16 years now. <laughs> this is the funniest thing I've ever heard you say. Look at your pee. Wait, can you do that song again for us? It's true. Sure. Pee pizza hove, lo tov. Yellow pee pee, that's not good. It then goes on to say if it's sort of, you know, pale, you're a winner. You're a hero. And kids know this. Every school kid in Israel can sing you this little jingle. All right. Who needs medical school well, when you got that? that? Happy Thanksgiving to you. Right, exactly. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. All right, coming up. Don's still laughing. Lisa Ling is going to join us on the newest episode of This Is Life. She's going to explore how some people are embracing non-human companions to fill a void of loneliness. Yeah, you're going to want to watch that. What is that. happening with this show? <laughs> <laughs> the last 20 minutes. Lisa Ling is back with a special this season, new season of This Is Life. Uh, in the first episode, Lisa takes a, a close look at how the loneliness of the pandemic era is changing the very fabric of human relationships and how some people are embracing non-human companions to fill the void. Take a look at this preview. Most of the time, Tasha spends her days in a finished bedroom in Tony's basement. Hey, Tootsie Pop. Mm, ready to get that makeup off and get changed? a place he built just for her, where the two of them can be alone. Um, are you physically intimate with Tasha? Uh, yes. What's that like? It's different. It's different than I would have expected, but there's a relationship there. Right now, sex is a very small part of it. It really is. Ooh, look how gorgeous you are. Sex may be why Tony first purchased Tasha, but he tells me that was just the beginning. Joining us now, the host of This Is Life, Lisa Ling. Hello, Lisa. Listen, Hello, you know, Don. These people are going to think this is weird, and to some extent, that maybe they're right. Um, but he's not the only one, and that's the reason you did it. There are lots of people who are doing what this man is doing. Well, look, Don, this is not an episode about sex dolls. It is about the reliance and even the relationship that we all are in with non-human entities. I mean, most of us these days are completely reliant and even addicted to our devices, our, our, our smartphones and the things that you can do and experience on them. And they are powered by very powerful AI. Um, and so there are algorithms that are literally 
that, that know more about us than we know about ourselves. We spend more time on them than we do with other human beings. They know what makes us happy, what makes us sad, what kinds of things that we want to buy. And in some ways, they've even begun to think for us because we're not thinking for ourselves. You know, these algorithms are essentially curating our feeds, delivering information based on the data they've collected about us. And even Stephen Hawking, before he passed away, said about AI that eventually it will become a new life form that will mm. outperform humans. So these are things that we actually, I think, need to be discussing and thinking about more. You know, one thing this made me think about are the studies that they've done where if someone has dementia or Alzheimer's, how they have these um they're like dogs or stuffed animals, animals they don't actually have to care for, but how it helps them cope and it helps them actually deal with um, what the progression of those symptoms looks like. But with this specifically, when it comes to what you're talking about, the relationship that this this man has with this with this doll, it, it raises the question of loneliness, I think, yeah. and what it looks like that people feel the need to seek that out because there is this this something that I think was exacerbated by the pandemic. Especially after the pandemic, yeah. right? Absolutely, Caitlin. And when you think about it, there are so many people out there who have social anxiety or, or a crippling fear of rejection. And I think those numbers have increased since the pandemic. When you think about something like a, a, a doll, right, a, a stuffed animal in the cases of people who, are, who have these neuro neurological disorders. But again, even our devices, they validate everything about us, right? They, they, they will never speak negatively of us or never feed you information that you don't want it to feed you or you may not think right and so um what does that say about about the future of humanity right when 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 this kind of technology really starts to take on a life of its own which it is starting to do i mean again it's occupying more of our time so to say that we're not in a relationship with it would be false yeah <laughs> and you think about this time in this day and age and we're so connected, right? But then yet we can be so isolated and yeah. disconnected. This it's, is why I love Lisa's show, because yeah. it's so interesting. Can't wait to see it. Lisa, thank you. Enjoy the holiday. Hope to see you in person soon. So great to see you both. Thank, thank you. you. And you can catch Life, This is Life with Lisa Ling Sunday at 10 Eastern on CNN. And we're back in a moment. All right. The top 10 CNN heroes of 2022 have been announced. One of them is going to be named the CNN Hero of the Year by you, our viewers. We are reintroducing each of our top 10 as you hopefully will vote for your favorite. Millions of refugees flood Afghanistan and Ukraine over the last year. This hero knows firsthand the challenges that they faced of rebuilding life in a new country. For all refugees and immigrants, food is a sense of self-preservation. So as long as you preserve those family recipes, it really instills a sense of rootedness, feeling connected to your cultural upbringing. In August, Chef Orbal will be partnering with Flavors from Afar to highlight her dishes from Afghanistan. My restaurant, Flavors from Afar, we really bring international cuisine to Los Angeles in a way that hasn't been done before. And it's a way to highlight chefs who all share some form of displacement. That's so cool and so special for them to be able yeah. to, to share that and keep that up. 
Go to CNNHeroes.com. Right now you can vote for her or any of your top 10 favorites this morning. And just in case you were wondering, we did not plan these outfits. I walked into the studio and I said, are you kidding me? We're wearing the exact same thing. Great minds dress alike. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. <laughs> we'll see you on Monday. Right. Enjoy your weekend. CNN Newsroom starts now. <laughs> That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.